Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm Patton McDowell, and I'm your host, and happy to give you ideas that can elevate your leadership at your current or your future nonprofit organization. Once again, I've got a fantastic conversation to share, and it's with Adam Cook, who is the Chief Development Officer at Mercy Health, a large hospital organization, uh, including 40 different hospitals across seven states and 16 foundations over which Adam is responsible. Lots of nonprofit leadership going on here as Adam and his team are raising in excess of $60 million a year. But of course, they're now having to adapt to the unique circumstances of healthcare philanthropy during a pandemic. Uh, Adam's leadership journey provides lots of great takeaways for you as you consider your path to nonprofit leadership. We talk about some of the best resources he's found throughout his journey. Uh, we talk about how do you maximize your staff and board uh, to elevate your leadership and that of your organization. And finally, we talk about how do you adapt your planning given all of the short-term challenges and distractions we're all facing now. And certainly what Adam is doing at Mercy will give you some ideas, I'm quite sure, as you address that type of uh, planning challenge. You'll get all of this and much more. It's uh, episode number 40. Check out the show notes. Uh, just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all the resources, links, books, and other information on Adam and the great work he's doing at Mercy Health. Speaking of resources, don't hesitate to reach out to us through any of our contact or communication channels. We're gathering great intelligence from nonprofit leaders across the country like Adam and would be happy to discuss that possibility of ways we could help you on your journey or your organization as you deal with all the things facing you at this time. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Adam Cook. Adam, thank you for joining me on the path. It's great to be here, Pat, and thanks for the opportunity. Well, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you, and, and obviously we'll get to some of the, the realities of healthcare philanthropy right now that you're frankly right in the middle of, but I'm also excited to talk to you about your journey. Uh, you've been at some wonderful institutions throughout your career, and I think you would agree you've had lessons learned in each case. Let's talk about that first. How did you get on the nonprofit path? It's an interesting question, Patton, and it's a rather long story, but it's one I love to share. Uh, coming right out of college, I was, uh, thought I wanted to be some type of super businessman leader. Uh, so I began my work in the banking and financial sector industry. Uh, was very successful at it, had some great folks that taught me a lot, uh, but I just wasn't finding the fulfillment uh, in my role. I was looking for something more. Um, during that time, I'd married my wife, Amy. Now we've been together over 16 years. And she is a social worker. She worked in the local hospital in Concord, North Carolina. Uh, she worked specifically with discharging stroke patients and cardiac patients. And every night we'd come home, this was before we had children, we'd have ample time to sit down and discuss life and discuss the day. And uh, she kept coming home every day talking about how great her day had been and how she kept uh, sharing with me how she had really impacted folks' lives. And she'd ask me how my day was. I said, well, it's great. I, I mean, I, I'm doing good work, but I just don't feel like I'm providing that impact. 
And she said, Adam, you need to get into healthcare. And specifically, I think you'd be good in fundraising. And I said, wow. I don't know anything about that. And she said, well, just trust me. It's about fit. Find the right fit. And those words keep resonating with me. So uh, I began to search and I was fortunate to uh, become a member of the foundation at what at the time was Northeast Medical Center, now Atrium Health Cabarrus, I believe. And uh, the, the future was set. And uh, from that point on, like I said, I've had great leaders, great mentors, great board members to work with that really just helped me uncover the passion that I have for nonprofit uh, work for fundraising in particular, and for trying to uh, match the interests of a donor with the need of a nonprofit organization. And uh, like I said, this, it's, it's been a wonderful roller coaster ride ever since that point. Right. On uh, over 15 years. Well, it's so well articulated. And like many of us that don't come into nonprofit or fundraising directly, uh, but I hear, first of all, I lesson, listen to your spouse, <laughs> Amy, uh, provides <laughs> wisdom to this day. And that's something we all should take note of. Our, our spouse or partner has uh, good advice and frankly know us well. And Excellent point. She, she was uh, indeed right on target. Um, well, Adam, talk about your current role. Obviously, now in, in the Midwest, you've moved from some East Coast institutions. Talk about Mercy and the role you have there. Sure. Thanks, Patton. Uh, Mercy Health is a fantastic healthcare ministry of over 40 hospitals across multiple states. Uh, we are based out of St. Louis, Missouri, but we have tremendous uh, reach within the state of Missouri, uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and then we have, we have some outlying opportunities with some ministries in Texas and uh, Mississippi and Kansas. So it's a great ministry for us to be able to try to be in the healing hands of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a healthcare organization, but they are also very focused on the ministry of how can we best uh, meet the needs of patients and families that need care. So it's a great, uh, it's a great organization. I'm fortunate and blessed to be the chief development officer of the Foundations of Mercy. Uh, there are about 16 foundations across multiple hospitals, and uh, I have the, the blessing to lead all fundraising initiatives and all of our fundraising teams as they seek to, uh, to raise support for the needs of our hospitals, whether that's capital needs, uh, programmatic needs, research needs. Uh, so I work with a, a very uh, capable and broad team to really focus on individual hospital needs and how we can energize those within their communities to give gifts of support that will augment the services that each one of these hospitals provide. Uh, oh, sorry to interrupt you because I'm, no. I'm impressed. The, the, the scope and volume of activity, Adam, is uh, remarkable. And of course, I know you have always been a student of productivity. <laughs> how do you keep it all organized? And particularly, the, the, I guess the remote nature, right? I mean, you don't, it's not like all of your team can easily be assembled around the, the board table. How, how do you personally stay organized? Uh, very true. And it's a great question. Um, one of the things that we as a team really try to focus on is what is our purpose? You know, uh, I've fallen prey to this many times in my career that 
as nonprofits and particularly nonprofit fundraisers, uh, oftentimes you're asked to be all things to all people or your organization needs to check off all the boxes. And uh, we try to be very deliberate in our approach. As I work with my leadership team, uh, we are very careful to uh, announce and share what we are, but we're also very compassionate to share what we're not. Uh, we are there to support the strategic plan of the hospitals in which we serve. Uh, we don't shy away from that. Uh, so if there's any opportunity for us to get involved with something that does not allow us to wave the flag of those hospitals or to seek ways to garner support for those hospitals, we shy away from that. Uh, we want to make sure that our partners within the medical system, uh, whether it be marketing or communications, that, that they do what they do best and we do what we do best. Uh, so we always try to keep our, our our razor sharp focus on why we're here and, and say no is that i guess the counter to that is it we have to say no sometimes to things that are presented as good, good ideas absolutely i mean just because it's a good idea and in many cases a great idea doesn't necessarily mean it's uh the role of the foundation to lead that initiative uh and that takes that takes some uh some difficult conversations at times and uh, I have to lift the team that I work with up because uh, they know the relationships so well within their communities, whether it be the administrators that they work with, whether it be their board chairs that they work with, that because we really focus on streamlining our approach and our mission and communicating that on a regular basis, when we have those difficult conversations, it's not quite as difficult. And the more we try to educate our boards and our volunteers and our donors and our ministers about what we are and what we do, it really allows us to, to, uh, to do even more within the, the parameters that we've set for ourselves. And that means raising more awareness, raising more funds, bringing more folks to the table to understand the needs of a nonprofit uh, healthcare system. And it really has worked well for us, but it's a consistent message that we have to share and if we don't do that consistently, then, then we can fall into trouble. Uh, but that, that's what I think the secret sauce is of working across this, this pretty large um, footprint is making sure that all of our team members understand why we're here, what their role is, and how their role is truly going to impact the success of the nonprofit ministry that we serve. And I'm sure that filters down then to the tactical of your to-do list, so to speak, and conversations with your team. I guess everything is put through that filter. Indeed, does it lift up the healthcare institution we're supporting? And if not, we don't do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a quick way to determine, you know, as, as nonprofit leaders, uh, we all walk in on a Monday morning, assuming our day is going to look one way. And by the end of the day, you sit back and think, holy moly, it's already five o'clock. It's already six o'clock. What happened to my day? <laughs> right. <laughs> really, we really use that as our filter as we go through the day. Is this going to strategically move our mission forward for our ministry? Yes, let's move on it. Let's work on it. Let's do good work around it. If it's not, then we either need to find our partner within our nonprofit that can take this load off of us or we can work with or the answer is no, we're not going to be able to handle this at this time. That's not what we do as an organization. 
Absolutely. And it sounds like I love your kind of framework for prioritization, which can help even the large organization all stay focused and, and effective and efficient. Um, but let me ask you, of course, we're going to get into the COVID-19, the, the front line of healthcare philanthropy that you're on now. But before that, oh, it seems like years ago, but only, se- what, seven or eight months ago, you arrived in the St. Louis area with your family. Um, talk about that, that arrival, getting started as a senior leader in, in the nonprofit space. What was that like or what was some things you did to quickly get acclimated to Mercy? Sure. Uh, it has been about eight months now. Uh, we arrived uh, the end of August, beginning of September, uh, and it was a transition. Uh, quite honestly, we, we drove our car in on Sunday evening, and Monday morning, our daughters started school. Wow. So quite, uh, <laughs> quite frankly, my 10-year-old and 8-year-old daughter uh, showed my wife and I what resiliency looks like. Indeed. Uh, and they've been quite the inspiration Uh, I have to say that Mercy did a fantastic job of uh, introducing me to the community. They are very sensitive to the fact that uh, we were moving to a new area of the country, and uh, they did a great job together the first week I was here. I was able to meet each one of my team members face-to-face to really talk about the issues that each local community was facing and how my role could help uh, smooth some of those wrinkles. So the first week I was here, our teams got together, the ministry leadership, the administrative leadership of our overall healthcare system was right there beside of me, uh, setting me up for success, uh, really helping to uh, build the narrative that I thought needed to be built so we could have uh, success in the long term. Uh, So I have to say an organization that really puts the time and the effort and the energy into the fundraising side of, of their work uh, is pivotal. And I have to commend Mercy. They, they did that very successfully and, they, and I felt very at home very early. Uh, but what I tried to really achieve in that first week when I was face-to-face with my, my leadership team was to ask the question. And I've really tried to, to use this. I, I use the word ask. A-S-K, in a lot of the conversations that I've had since I've been here. And I I say that A stands for allow. I really want to uh, allow them to answer the question. I ask it, but allow them to answer it. Good, good. S is seek. I really want to seek a connection of what they are sharing with me and what I can provide for them. And if I'm seeking to hear and then seeking to respond and to answer, then we'll find a common balance. And then the K is keep. I want to keep doing what's working well. I want to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep responding so that every time that I ask, there's a purpose behind it that I'm trying to uh, allow them to speak, seek a commonality, and keep moving forward. I love that. And that's such a good framework, I would think, for leaders, whether they're veterans or newcomers, thinking through that framework that you're going to approach your team and of course communications that you'll have in every direction. I'm also impressed, Adam, that you and I have seen a lot of our colleagues kind of get parachuted into a new job and in essence, go figure it out yourself. But it sounds like Mercy was very intentional and organized to assure you a more rapid start off. They were very intentional. Uh, but I have to say they, they, 
gave me the free reign to go out and to, to uh, carve the path that needed to be carved. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. They, they set me up for success, but then they're also giving me the freedom to, uh, to move and navigate as I feel our fundraising teams need to go, uh, which is important. Uh, but I will say there, uh, there are organizations that don't have the ability or the framework that I had here at Mercy. And it's really falling back on, on the skills that I think our nonprofit leaders out there have. Yep. Being sure of uh, the experience that they bring, but then also being quick to realize that uh, we have tremendous partners all around us as nonprofit leaders, whether it be board members, whether it be donors, whether it be just like-minded individuals that want our organizations to succeed. So one of the early traps that I fell into earlier in my career was I felt like I was in this on my own. And I was the only one that really understood the passion and the need of my nonprofit. But as I've gotten a little bit longer in the tooth, I realized, man, there are copious amounts of individuals that only want the best for the nonprofit, which ultimately means they want the best for me. So really seek out those partnerships, seek out those mentors, seek out those folks that you can ask so that they can supply the answers to help you navigate the direction that uh, you need to take your organization. Great point. And we'll, we'll touch on that again, I'm sure, because it's the kind of advice, especially Adam, as you moved into a new community, uh, reliance on resources like mentors and others. I was going to ask you about, again, you had, great experience in fundraising. It wasn't like you were a newcomer to that. But as you arrived in St. Louis and the region, of course, how did you approach the fundraising thing? What, what were you looking at to analyze where they were and where you could best help them? We are blessed in this, in this region of the country to, and, and Mercy in particular has tremendous footprint in some large communities, uh, St. Louis, Oklahoma City, Northwest Arkansas, uh, Springfield, Missouri. Uh, each one of those larger communities have tremendous resources and, and donors that have a capacity and a passion to give. Uh, when, I, when I came into the organization, as many nonprofits probably leaders here, uh, what can we do to take our fundraising to the quote unquote next level? <laughs> we hear those words a lot. And that was no different when I moved here. Uh, what we purposely tried to do uh, when I arrived was to reach out, but to look in. And in reaching out, it allowed us to reach out to existing donors that we had, potentially new donors that we wanted to approach, reach out to them and share the story of each one of our hospitals. You know, as nonprofit leaders, we, we eat and we breathe and we sleep this work. So we assume everybody else does too. Right. This really allowed us the opportunity with me coming in to say, let's reintroduce what fundraising looks like. Let's reintroduce the purpose of our ministry. Let's reintroduce how your gift will impact patients and families for potentially years, if not generations to come. So we tried to reach out, but also, and I was, very fortunate to have a wonderful chief operating officer that I work with here at the foundation as well to really look in what processes do we have in place, whether it's uh, around donor uh, records is around ways that, that we reach out frequency that we reach out to potential donors. How can we look in and, and really clean up 
uh, some of our database. You know, I used to think it was a sense of pride if you had a database of X number of donors, uh, but that size doesn't matter if, if they're not being uh, reached, cultivated, and they're not part of what you're trying to achieve. So we really tried to, uh, to cull down our donor list so that we could strategically approach them in meaningful ways. So as we reached out, we look in, that really allowed us to, uh, to figure out what we thought we could raise on the fiscal level, uh, fiscal year uh, projection, and how we could really begin to tweak in each community what that meant. Do we need to uh, reach out more in terms of planned giving? Do we need to reach out more in terms of uh, major gifts or grateful, grateful families? And each community has kind of created their own uh, marching orders that work best for their local community. I would be nice to think I can come in in my first six months to a year and say, I know everything about every one of the communities that I work in. So that's why I really lean heavily on those leaders there. Um, I believe in the folks that I work with. They are strong partners and uh, they're really doing great work in the local communities that they lead. I could not agree more. And you and I have talked before and I've, certainly I talked to other organizations. It is the quality of your database, isn't it? As much as the quantity, uh, certainly you need a pipeline and ways to, to bring new people into the fold, but I applaud your effort to focus on the quality of the relationships first. And I take it your team was responsive. Adam, certainly they were doing good work before you arrived, but it sounds like they also embraced this opportunity to kind of recultivate relationship building. Yes, I think so. Um, I think whenever a new leader comes in, uh, there's some kicking the tires time. <laughs> uh, is this guy honest? Is he, is he trying to do things for the right reasons? And I hope that I, I portray that. Um, I think with each month, that we continue to work together, particularly as we've had to uh, be thrown into this uh, COVID-19 pandemic response. Uh, we're in this together as a foundation. We're in this together as, as coworkers and now as, as professional friends. And I think the longer that we're with each other and that we're there to support one another, uh, hopefully a leader's value is seen and uh, the team comes together and follows that that singular focus and that singular mission to move forward to do what's best for our healthcare organization. Well, let's talk about that. COVID-19, you know, you, you had things moving in lots of positive directions in your eight months, COVID-19 hits. And so not only are you affected like everyone else in the world, but as a healthcare philanthropy organization, I'm curious, how did you all evaluate what was, you know, rapidly changing circumstances, um, you know, I use the term triage. So Adam, how did you and the other kind of administrators at Mercy uh, evaluate and, you know, make a plan to move forward? Well, those are great words. I think rapid and triage uh, are fantastic words to describe. Appropriate for healthcare too, I guess, huh? Absolutely. Um, it was, it was a nuanced approach for Mercy. Uh, obviously, Every day, our caregivers provide the highest level of care for our patients and their families. So from a fundraising perspective, we did not want to uh, immediately respond in a way of, oh my goodness, uh, this is something brand new we're not prepared for. We are prepared. We were prepared. Uh, every day, our caregivers come into work and they work tirelessly, whether it's for COVID-19 or flu or broken arms or cancer or you name it. 
they're professionals and they do great work. So we wanted to make sure that we didn't uh, unveil some grand calls that made our donors, our communities feel like, oh my goodness, Mercy was not ready to take care of patients. We absolutely were and we continue to be. Right. We took a little bit of a measured approach. Uh, as things were rapidly changing, we did not immediately come out with support our COVID-19 plans because we wanted folks to know we're prepared. We will take care of you. Come to our hospital. Don't worry. We're ready. It's kind of our Super Bowl. We've been, we prep for this and we practice for this all season long. So when something happens, we're ready. Uh, but at, after a couple of weeks, we did want to, of course, uh, discuss the opportunity to uh, support your local hospital. Uh, but what we really felt like we needed to do was to support our local caregiver. Right. Mercy and our foundations unveiled what we call the Emergency Response Fund. And it wasn't to supply uh, particular dollars for operations so hospitals could, could work this plan through the pandemic. It was how can we best support the coworkers and the caregivers that are truly the front lines helping these individuals and these families that are dealing with COVID-19. So we unveiled the Emergency Response Fund to specifically assist our employees as maybe some of their spouses or their loved ones were furloughed, uh, lost jobs, were at home with their children. So uh, school's out, they need to look at daycare issues, they needed to look at buying technology so they could continue to uh, have their children uh, do schoolwork from home. Right. This emergency response fund was really targeted towards the employee and their specific needs, not the organization and the needs of, 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 the, of the facility or the hospital. Uh, so by unveiling that, it really, I think, put a spotlight on what needed to be uh, seen. And that was, we got thousands of coworkers that do wonderful work for you and your family. Rest easy. We're here to take care of you. But you know what? It sure would be great if you could support our efforts in supporting them. So by unveiling this emergency response fund, that really then broadened the scope of our donors to say, well, what else do you need? We want to support the coworker, but how can we also help with the hospital? So it turned into meals. It turned into uh, cash gifts. It turned into PPE. It turned into um, a number of things that really uh, we would not have been uh, successful if we immediately came out on day one and said, here's our approach and this is why we need it. I think Great point. a nuanced approach to really, again, match the, the interest of the donor with the need of the organization really worked well. And uh, I can't thank our donors, our administrators, and our leaders and our foundations enough because they have really led a fantastic charge and uh, we're doing some great things for the coworkers and those that are suffering through this pandemic. Well, I'm not surprised the, the donor response has been favorable because, as you say, measured is a good word to describe it. It wasn't impulsive or reactionary, but it did make clear that philanthropy still had a part in the, the world of, of Mercy Healthcare, right? That we still need your help to, to the extent you're able to, to help us. You're exactly right, Patton. And, and that was probably one of the most difficult uh, challenges we needed to discuss as a fundraising team was how do we responsibly move forward with our daily needs for fundraising for a nonprofit medical center while also addressing the current need of COVID-19 pandemic and the employees and the families that we're serving. Uh, so that was a balanced approach. 
uh, and it went back to my, my ask again. Uh, I found a, ourselves really needing to go to the specific donor and asking them, how are you? How are you feeling through this time? Yep. Uh, are you interested in, in meeting some of the needs that we have? And allowing the donor to dictate, not we dictate for him or her, but allowing the donor to dictate, no, things are good. I'd like to continue to support the cancer campaign. Or I'd like to continue to support uh, orthopedics. Or, you know, at this time, I have a family member that's uh, on the front lines. I really want to uh, direct my gift towards the employee response fund. Um, that's really where uh, we took that step back again. We allowed the donor to tell us where their interests were. Now, we were very quick and able and ready to share these are our, our needs for COVID-19 response, but also these are the continuing needs that we have for campaigns that will be here and will still need support once this COVID pandemic passes. So, so you didn't pull the plug on campaigns, Adam, that's a question I get. Yeah, what'd you do with, I take it you might have some capital campaigns or other programmatic campaigns in motion? Absolutely. We did not pull the plug, uh, but we were very sensitive to what was going on around us. And in fact, we tried to reach out to many of our donors that were in the middle of campaign gifts or were considering uh, providing gifts to capital campaigns to let them know uh, we are not stopping a campaign. Uh, just like all of our lives have been interrupted by COVID-19, uh, certain capital campaigns are being interrupted, but that's gonna be for a short time. And we will be asking at appropriate times and in appropriate ways uh, for support for our campaigns. And by saying that, it really let the donor know, wow, this campaign is important. But we also recognize they're going to be sensitive in their approach in appropriate times and in appropriate ways means different things for different donors. Right. We did not want to do is have a broad paintbrush and just one fell swoop, this is a decision that we made. As you know, relationships rule the day in nonprofit fundraising. So if we're really doing a good, good job of building relationships, we can call that donor, ask how they're feeling, and then understand is now the right time to ask for a gift or continue to talk about a campaign gift? Oh, is now the time to back off a little bit? Is this the appropriate way to ask? You know, obviously we're not in front of donors face-to-face -face right now. So what's an appropriate way to have a, a conversation about a, a philanthropic gift uh, virtually. Uh, is this donor the right person to ask in this medium or should yep. we come back and wait for a more appropriate time? But no, to answer your question, uh, we, we decided that we were not going to cancel or stop anything. We were just going to be appropriate and sensitive as we move forward. Yeah, it's well put. And I could not agree more. Um, and again, you're, you're, uh, following up on your previous comments, you're letting the donor decide as opposed to a blanket response um, because some donors indeed have the means and the, the enthusiasm to support and others, you, your, you and your team can listen and uh, act accordingly. Uh, well, and speaking of the people you are, are speaking with, I guess I want to first ask you about your boards of directors and I guess in your current case, multiple boards um, but in your history, uh, professionally, you've always had to build strong boards. Talk about that. What have, has been key to uh, successful board development? And then maybe we can talk about how your boards have responded in this current situation. Sure. Uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, 
building a team around you as a nonprofit leader is critically important and having the right board member is paramount. Uh, through my tenure and in, in the roles that I've had, uh, boards have been fantastic to build. It's exciting to build a board that understands the mission and the vision and the value of your organization. Uh, as our teams have tried to build boards, we really want to make sure that we are having a representation of the community in which we serve. Uh, and I think that we need to be very sensitive to uh, not only um, demographic information, uh, where you live, but also what are your past experiences? Uh, what can this person bring to the board that is very different from another board member? Uh, whether you have a board that's nine people or 29 people, if you all think alike, you really only have a board of one. So we were very careful as we built our boards to make sure that we're bringing folks in that have different perspectives. To us, perspective is, is so important. And in many cases, that perspective comes from uh, past experience. But in many cases, as we build our boards for success for the future, we look for ways that we can bring in some younger board members, middle-aged, and some older board members so that, again, we have a mentor approach. The older ones can mentor some of the younger ones. But also our younger board members come in and we want to capture their interest early in their fundraising journey and in their nonprofit journey. And if we can do that effectively on the front end, then we feel like we have a board member for life. Yes. Someone that's interested in our calls for life. Um, and these younger board members uh, bring in a, a wealth of interest and passion and uh, ability to do things that uh, maybe we've never done before, particularly with technology and, and now through COVID-19 issues, how can, we, how can we reach out to folks through technology that quite honestly, some of our middle or older board members uh, would not have the ability to do. We recognize though that this truly is an investment in our board. You know, in many cases, you know, in my previous uh, positions, we'd say, well, we need to find board members that have a tremendous capacity to give. And of course, yep. we we continue to want to have that. But in many cases, we would, we would uh, sacrifice that capacity to give today with a younger board member that has the passion that will grow into that. Uh, because if we're only looking for a certain type of board member with a certain capacity to give, then the board's going to uh, age itself out. And in a short amount of time, we're not gonna have a board that represents our community. We're not gonna have a board that's built for longevity. So as we build these boards, we're very careful to look across demographics, but, but uh, we wanna make sure that we're getting all ages involved and so that all family levels can get involved so that maybe it was the, the grandmother uh, last year, it's the granddaughter this year, and moving forward, it's going to be their children's children and it becomes a family affair as, as we try to build the support of our nonprofit. That's fantastic. And have you seen already kind of board dynamics changing? Obviously, communication and meetings and meeting management has had to evolve over the last, you know, two months. Do you foresee other changes or how are your boards reacting in this current situation? I have to commend our boards. I think um, they have stayed in lockstep with our foundation leaders. Our foundation leaders have done a great job in trying to communicate as much as they can. Uh, you know, if we're not careful, you can turn on the news you can get on your, your the computer and everything and anything is COVID related. 
So we want to be careful that we're not just sharing information just to share it. But the information that we share with our boards is, is important, it's timely, it's urgent, and it's something that they can then use out as they're waving the flag for our hospital and our foundation. We're always looking for ways to equip our board members with information. You know, the absence of information, folks make stuff up, and we certainly don't want that. We want our board members to feel like they're part of what's going on in our foundation. So we've been very, um, very deliberate in our approach to uh, share with them information that they need to hear, that they can share with others, but also not inundate them with uh, today's COVID update, because if we're not careful, it can turn quickly into spam. So I think our board members have been very uh, receptive and appreciative of that. And they know that when our foundations are reaching out to them with information, it's pertinent and it's something that they're able to share. And that really broadens our scope and our message uh, for today's needs. But then hopefully again, as we get past this pandemic, what we look to do in the future. I couldn't agree more. And I know we all advise each other in the nonprofit space to communicate. You know, there's, that's the kind of rally cry, but your point's a good one. We, we should still measure that, right? And not overload because everybody is getting bombarded in their work from home environment with email. And so it sounds like you have been maybe intentional about not hitting them with every single data point and giving them information that they'll likely open. Very true. We, we want to be, like I said, timely, and we want to provide them valuable information. But in today's world, you know, you can find whatever information, whatever data you want to uh, augment your, uh, your viewpoint. So we try to give them data that's coming from our hospitals that's going to impact their lives, their families' lives, and the donors that we're, we're trying to reach. And I think that's been valuable to them. And uh, when we can provide value as a nonprofit fundraising uh, group, then we're doing our job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of all the leadership, staff, board, and the hospital system itself, how do you approach strategic planning now, Adam, with so much uncertainty? Um, you know, event planning is very difficult, of course, but I guess everything within the strategic plan you arrived to eight months ago is somewhat up in the air. So what has been you and your leadership team's approach to planning? Mm, man, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I wish I could say that, that we had all the answers that we could put in a nice little notebook and share. Um, what we have decided to do is you know, control what we can control. And beyond that, just like any good nonprofit or fundraiser, you cannot control what you cannot control. So as we have looked to strategically plan, we have needs for our organization that will be there regardless of COVID-19 had, had struck or not. Because COVID-19 has hit us as hard as it has in the healthcare sector, it really just uh, augments even more the need for philanthropic support. Uh, so as we plan, we are continuing to plan in six month, 12 month, 18 month, 24 month increments, all the while knowing that those plans might need to shift, we might need to, to redirect some. But we decided that we need to have a plan. And in the absence of a plan, we're just flying by the seat of our pants. So we are continuing to plan as if COVID-19 did not happen on the front end. Once that plan has been created, 
we then go back and say, okay, now because of COVID-19, where do we need to veer slightly? Where do we need to maybe uh, drop back and punt for a month or two? But we are not building our long-term, our intermediate-term planning off of COVID-19. We feel right. since we have been an organization for as long as we have, uh, we owe that to our healthcare system. We owe that to our donors to say, here's our plan. We're moving forward with it, all the while knowing that we will probably need to drop back and punt. But again, we control what we can control, and then we, we augment or we deflect or we re- rearrange on the things that we cannot control. Is there, I guess, a, a greater frequency of visiting the plan in other words, you know, what might have been a quarterly review or semi or even annual review, it sounds like you all are more actively reviewing the plan, um, I don't know, on a monthly basis even, or what would you yeah. describe now as the frequency? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we try to look at things um, officially, I guess you could say, on a monthly basis. Um, but throughout the weeks during that month, we are in regular communication with where we think things are going. We talk with our uh, physicians and in infectious disease to understand kind of where, where we think uh, things are moving. How is that going to relate uh, to our events? Are we having an outdoor event? Are we having an indoor event? Does this event have uh, predominantly a, uh, an older population that attends versus a, a, maybe a young donor society type of event? So we're really trying to, uh, I guess, be a little bit more thoughtful and what type of events we're having. And then how far down the calendar are they so that we can adjust appropriately if need be. Uh, we, no one has a crystal ball uh, and we'd love to, particularly as a health organization, we want to be safe, we want to be responsible, we want to do the right thing. But we also know that uh, to be responsible for the long-term successful organization, we're going to have to get back into regular business, whatever that new regular looks like sooner than later. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, well, Adam, you have been fantastic. Uh, as I knew it would be, your journey offers insight for leaders that are in senior positions now or aspire to, to be in those roles in a role like yours. Is there other kind of final advice? Um, you know, there may be some people right now that are considering a career change. Frankly, we all have more time to reflect in a work from home environment. So I wonder if they're for-profit folks pondering moving to nonprofit or moving even out of our sector. But if someone came to you and said, yeah, I'm thinking about moving into nonprofit, what are kind of some of the key advice items you would offer? Uh, well, thanks, Pat, for the opportunity to, to be part of this day and to answer this question. Um, really I have two pieces of advice that I would give. The first is, you know, what my wife shared with me many years ago, it's about fit. So I encourage those that are out there that are interested in either moving up in the nonprofit world or moving over from for-profit to nonprofit is find where you fit. Find that organization, that nonprofit that you're already interested in, that you are passionate about, that you have compassion for, uh, and really, jump in with both feet, whether that's volunteering at first to really understand uh, the inner workings of that nonprofit. Uh, lots of folks that have tremendous passion, uh, but as we all know as nonprofit leaders, passion is only one small component of what we do on a daily basis. So 
I would encourage those folks to uh, find the right fit. The second thing is, and I can't say this enough, at least from my own journey, is find a mentor. Find a mentor in that space that you can really uh, saddle up beside, that you can ask questions of, that you can really focus on what he or she does and learn from them. Uh, I've had two fantastic mentors in my, in my journey. One is a gentleman named Jim Monroe, who was the executive director of the Northeast Medical Center Foundation that gave me my, my start in nonprofit development. He taught me so much by just me get, getting uh, access to him to watch him do what he does best. And that was to build relationships and to, uh, to work consistently through a large organization. The second mentor that I, I would like to speak about is, is Michael Rose, who was uh, the, the former head of the uh, Carolina's Healthcare Foundation in Charlotte, North Carolina. Great individual who always had time uh, for me to ask questions, to, uh, to listen to, to, uh, to spitball ideas off of. So I would really encourage those that are interested in getting an opera work or are already there is to identify a mentor in your space and just simply learn and listen and ask. And finally, Pat, I have to say, I've appreciated uh, the partnership and the mentorship that you've always provided and the roles that you served and the, the friendship that we've had over the years. Uh, you provide tremendous uh, support and insight and access to the nonprofit world that's been uh, invaluable to me as well. So thank you. Adam, you're kind to, to mention that, uh, and certainly you lift up those other two mentors uh, as great examples. I could not agree more, I think, for anyone uh, in or aspiring to join the nonprofit sector. Uh, you'll find if you are appropriate in your approach, people that are in this sector want to help you. And if you're respectful of their time and, and you know, approach it in the right way, uh, you will find people like you found and those mentors, folks that'll help you along. So thank you Absolutely. for lifting that up. And I'm delighted to, to pass that along as well. Um, as you know, Adam, I ask every guest to consider a book that they can add to our virtual or real bookshelf. Mm -hmm. uh, is there a book or two that has been meaningful to you on your professional journey that you might share with our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, two books. One is Old, Tried, and True. It's called Asking by Gerald Pants a 59 minute guide to everything board members, volunteers, and staff must know to secure the gift. This to me is something that I think as all nonprofit leaders and fundraising leaders, we may have read, but I always find myself picking it up every so often to uh, re-energize and to get back to the basics. So I'd recommend that one. Excellent. Second one is a book called The First 90 Days by Michael D. Watkins. It really helps uh, leaders prescribe what their first 90 days of leadership in their new role looks like. But I have to say, I think we are all as nonprofit leaders in a new role in this new COVID-19 world. So I picked it back up just the other day and started thumbing through it again and find that there's so many relevant topics and uh, what our new world is going to look like for these next 90 days as we get back into the work that we do and whatever that new world looks like. It's just as relevant today as if I was starting my job or you're starting your job listener uh, for your first 90 days. So I'd recommend that one as well. Fantastic. And could not be more on target as much as we all learn from our experiences. We all are indeed starting over 
And so that book has helped me as well. And I think uh, it's well worth the read because it'll allow you to be more nimble as you move ahead on uncharted territory. Um, Adam, thank you for helping me with your insight, your journey, and uh, for joining us on the path. Thank you, Pat. And it's a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate all the work that you do and the great work that all of our nonprofit leaders are doing in the communities in which they serve. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Adam as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can shape your professional development and your organization's strategy. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, where you can find more about the good work Adam's doing, as well as some good book recommendations to add to your list as well. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to our podcast at just go to patmcdowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all the other primary platforms. Don't want you to miss any of our weekly episodes. Every Thursday they are released and we've got bonus features coming up as well at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.